When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. And who would not love him who first loved us? In that when we were yet his enemies, he delivered and reconciled us. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're going to England in the 1600s to hear a sermon from John Flavel. Troy, how are you doing? I'm doing good. So I just learned that his name is John Flavel and not John Flavel or Flavel Flav, which is how I always imagined his name was. I've I've learned something new. You know, I've only ever heard his name read. I've read him in, you know, quotes or something by him. I've never seen his name on paper so that was a new one for me my brain when i see that word my brain goes flavel as in flavel flavel oh now i'm gonna get tongue twisted saying flavel i I think i might actually get this one better than yeah than you in general you will i'm definitely fighting saying flavel and i even as i look at the word flavel Flavel. it just doesn't look right to me it looks it looks weird it feels weird and so i might be talking about our man john this episode joel john (laughs) (laughs) It's a famous name for those who enjoy Puritan uh, reading and writing in that you may not know, may not have listened to him or heard from him before. We definitely haven't listened to him. This is our first time having him on Revive Thoughts. We have covered so many different Puritans. I mean, there's so many that when I went to like list the names of them, it was like, it it was too long to even be bothered with. Like we've covered a ton of them. It's kind of incredible to me. They have amazing stories of being in wars and all these different things. And if you had told me early on, we'd still have this many to go. Um, I remember early on in the days of Revive Thoughts, Elise and I, my wife, Elise, over at Mars and Missionaries were talking, and we were talking about how, like, at some point you're going to run out of people to have on Revive Thoughts, because there's only so many sermons you can bring back, and yet we're closing in here on three years, and I feel like my list of people to get on the show is as long as it's ever been that we, not to mention going back and revisiting people that we only got to cover a little bit of. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. so many different people in God's kingdom, and I feel like this show has introduced me to so many wonderful people that I never knew about. Even just doing the research for this episode, I was like, this guy just seems like a really cool guy, John Flavel. Yeah, we could we could even do just like a, a whole John revived thought. It, just John, right? Because <laughs> most of them are named John. John. <laughs> that, what a great what a great spinoff, revived Johns. Yeah, at least half of these people are named Johns at some point. Uh, John Flavel, born in so it's either sixteen twenty seven or 1630, depending on which counts you read. Both counts, there's different accounts, different ages, but uh, 1620s, they're only three years apart, either 1627 or 1630. Birth records were not things that were really, you know, revered, kept as much as we do today. There were no Facebook memories uh, to populate your (laughs) newsfeed and remind you of when you were born and when your child was born. You just had to know. Now, if you know about England, In the 1600s, you know that this is a very contentious time to be born and raised and go through. Flavel came at the age 
of a huge English civil war that was gripping the country, and his teen years were likely spent hearing and watching these war stories, things happening to his own country. Maybe he even saw battles himself or uh, would run into wounded soldiers. And we don't we don't know specifically, you know, we're just uh, imagining, but I mean, imagine growing up during the American Civil War, uh, it, it's, it would be something that would be hard to avoid. Like that's the environment that he's growing up in uh, during the English Civil War. But he didn't become a soldier himself. Now he did go uh, to school and gathered an education and eventually he'd go on to Oxford to further his education. Now, I looked for stories or for some explanation as to why he was motivated to become a pastor, anything to kind of give us an idea of what he was thinking about, but that part of his story is just not really given to us. You would imagine somebody growing up in the English Civil War, they might be tempted to have very strong opinions on religion, because after all, everyone had very strong opinions, I'm sure, during that time, considering the huge effect that that battle was having, um, and it was a religious, you know, war between all these different things going on in, in there. But at the same time, you also could imagine he might have been tempted to just forget about it. Faith isn't worth it. Look at all the problems it causes. Uh, so I was curious if I could find out what it was, but we did not. There was no, I, I couldn't find it, at least in my time. Uh, what was that motivating spark? And sometimes that happens where you want to know certain little details and their stories, but you just don't get to find them. However, he started out as an assistant to a gentleman, and when that gentleman died, he took over the church. He was extremely beloved by his congregation. And this is a point I wanted to emphasize. A lot of times people think that the great theologians, the great you know thinkers and writers are too highbrow for their congregations. Yet I found sometimes that can be true. There can be some guys who are kind of disconnected, but a lot of times they're very much loved. Um, Men like B.B. Warfield were loved by their students, Charles Spurgeon loved by his congregation, even the old guys like Basil and Aquinas, these guys are deeply loved by their congregations, by their people. And one reason he was particularly loved, one thing that made him stand out, was he was very lax about collecting tithes. Now imagine, today this is not the case, but imagine the 1600s, 1500s, you go to church, you're kind of getting into the pew and the pastor comes over and goes, hey, haven't, a, haven't seen your tithe come in, we're going to get that tithe in soon, what, what's going on here? I think most of us would hate that, would not enjoy church. It would not make church a welcoming place, but that was the way it was. So imagine you're a, you're going to church, you're in the 1500s, 1600s, you know, you, you rode the horse into the congregation, you get up, you're getting off the the, the church, your, the wagon, whatever it is, maybe you walk there and the pastor comes up to you and goes, hey, you got, you got the tithe today? It's been a little while since you've tithed, you're running late, my records show you're behind. And as uncomfortable as that would be, I think a lot of us would hate going to church in that situation. That was the way it was for most of the churches at that time. The pastor kept track of the tithe, and considering it was his like allowance to eat, he kept track of it pretty heavily. Flavelle, no, he said no to that. I don't want to have that job. He said, I felt like I'd be biased in my preaching and my counseling. And so he handed it off to somebody else. He said, we're not going to keep super hard track. I'm just going to trust you guys to do the right thing. Come to church. That's what's most important to me. And it, it, there were other things he did, but I think they gave you a good kind of flavor of how he ran his church. And I think that also um, was a really wise idea. I don't think that I'm glad that church doesn't run that way today. Yeah, so he uh, would eventually move to Dartmouth and he would be active in Dart in or around Dartmouth until the end of his days. And I say in or around because this is a time when the monarchy took back control and things got really hard for English people during this time. It's a part of history that uh, the nonconformists were established. And uh, this is a group of people that the king was persecuting, uh, and he would categorize certain people and label them nonconformists. 
And I think this is one of the coolest eras to kind of uh, cover people, to see people that lived and preached during this nonconformist era, because it's a small pocket. It's only about 25 years. And essentially, these people were told that they don't want them preaching. You can't preach. You're certainly not anywhere near a church. You can't go near a church. And they would set up these perimeters in which they would enforce the ban against these people preaching. Uh, and so obviously you can't go anywhere near churches and they put a five mile radius around people's homes that you can't preach within five miles of your homes. And John Flavel was labeled one of these nonconformists. And so um, he couldn't preach at any churches. He couldn't preach within five miles of his home. So of course him and, and many other people in this area, they would become very good at geography, figure out, you know, wh where is that border in which they're not going to enforce uh, me preaching here and he would find areas around Dartmouth again not in the in the town where he is in the churches but kind of out on those outskirts where he could preach and people would come people from all types of places would come and hear him preach and these would be in barns in the middle of the night you know you you're, you're trying to stay under the radar you don't draw attention to yourself these would be out in the middle of woods where uh, people would hike in for the day to, to hear a sermon, or there's a, accounts of preaching on a nearby island that you couldn't get to during high tide. And so during low tide, you could you could get out to this rock, and then during high tide, it would be isolated and remote, and you wouldn't have to worry about people uh, coming up on you and surprising you. All of this creativity, you know, generated by this era, again, between 20 and 25 years, where these restrictions were implemented on specific pastors that the king didn't like. And eventually, the king did grant him and a small congregation permission to have a church. And Troy, tell me if you agree with this, because I, the way I kind of read it here, because the king quickly took it back and quickly pretty much outlawed Flavel, and he had to run and it, in fear for his life, he boarded a ship to flee to London to avoid capture and likely death. Do you think that, like, the king, was it a trick? Was the, was the king like, you know, we, we know he's out there preaching somewhere, but let me grant him a church and a congregation so that we can we can catch him in the act and, and kind of point him I, out? Or was, do you think the king yeah, was having I, a change I, of heart? I, I or what do you think? I think it's possible. I can't tell. I can't tell. Like, for example, in communist China, they do that, where they're like, put your names on the list. We're friends. We'll let you have a church. And then, like, a year or two later, they go to everyone on the list, and we're like, now we know who you are. We caught you kind of right. thing. So That's kind of how don't I read know. it. That's how I felt like it was, too. It could have been that there was genuinely a change of heart or a change of politics back in London, but it kind of seemed to me like, yeah, hey, I have a church, and now we got you. And it was like, because from that point on, Flavel was persecuted. And again, eventually he had to leave because they said, like, if you stay, you're dead. Like, you have to go. So it, mm -hmm. it got really bad for him. On the um, on the He gets on a boat, heads to London to get away from this. On the way to London, the boat almost shipwrecks. And the story goes that he prayed and prayed basically like, God, keep this boat upright. And the Lord did. And that's a pretty incredible story. But there are other similar stories that have been on Revive Thoughts like that. Hudson Taylor kind of famously has one like that too, where he was heading into some corals. There was no wind. And he prayed, God, give us wind. And just as it looked like it was out of reach, the wind hit them and saved the boat. Um, he was only able to save 
uh, only able to stay in London for about a year. That congregation he was under had some problems too. He was actually offered to run this congregation in London, but it was a very dicey situation, which kind of makes sense. If you weren't safe out in like, you know, a further away, you would be even less safe in London. He leaves and goes back to Dartmouth and they burn him an effigy in response. Um, that's actually the first time I think we've had somebody burned an effigy. We've had people burned alive on our show, John Bradford, Thomas Cranmer, Savonarala, but I'm pretty sure he was the first one that was burned in effigy. When Flavel heard the news, his immediate response was to get on his knees and pray for those who had burned him, which I thought was pretty incredible. You could have laughed it off. He could have been mad, but his immediate response was to pray for those people. Now, remember, he was working so hard for this congregation that was really small. I mean, this was probably 100 to 200 people. You really couldn't have more than that in your congregation because you're, you know, you're under so much attack by the church. Um, this isn't Spurgeon's thousands. This isn't several hundred people. Some of you, I mean, you, you don't, you wouldn't even imagine going to a church that small or your pastor would not be a pastor of a church that small, be considered a failure. And yet we see this guy, you know, just going for for decades working so hard to take care of his very little flock and there's crazy stories one time he was really like we're really watching him he wanted to go you know baptize some of his new believers but they they, they had gotten wind of the baptism they weren't going to let him so he dressed up as a woman and joined a group of his girls headed that way they didn't think to look for a woman with a group of girls and he got there he takes all the clothes it wasn't anything weird he was just using that as a disguise to get to the baptism so he'd be okay and there's just tons of stories like that where he's just doing these things, again, for about 100 to 200 people. You know, a lot of people, again, would consider that if your church was 100 and 200 people 25 years later, you might consider that a failure. Yet look at the links that this pastor and love of his congregation is willing to go to take care of feeding that small flock. And then uh, one time the Dartmouth, uh, the, some of the men in Dartmouth were in a sea naval battle and they found out the naval battle was happening in real time, like right then. And so he got everyone in town together to pray and to fast. And I don't know how the battle itself went, but not one man from Dartmouth died on that day during the, during the big naval battle, which was pretty incredible. And we do have these kind of these neat stories, these neat accounts of his interactions with people around. There's one neat one where there's an account of a young man. He was a doctor and he sailed into harbor there one day. And for reasons that no one really knows, he decided to kill himself there on the spot, on the boat, in the harbor. And he took a knife and he slit his own throat. And then he took that same knife and stabbed himself in the gut, in the stomach. And everyone was shocked and they grabbed him and they grabbed the nearest doctor that they could to try to save them and and they did manage to have him cling on to life but just barely there and a minister was fetched and Flavel happened to be there and he came over to talk to this man this young doctor who had just tried to kill himself and he questioned him about eternity and and this young man, he said he was saved, but Flavel, he wasn't so sure. And so he continued to question him and talk him through the gospel. And this young man, he was not doing, he was not expected to survive much longer. Flavel would stay with him throughout that day and he would return each and every day and pray over him and share the gospel with him. And he talked through the gospel so many times. And this young man would later testify to his love for hearing the gospel preached to him. And as he recovered, shocking all the doctors, they all called it a miracle. And this man eventually would make a good enough recovery to return back home. 
And when he got home, his minister would testify and vouch for Flavel, saying that, hey, he's he's a different man. Like, there's a change in him that they can only credit to, uh, you know, a, a genuine conversion that he had from hearing the gospel that Flavel preached to him. So just, his just conviction to say, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna make sure, that, if nothing else, this boy knows the gospel. The last story that had to be told, it's really unlike anything I've ever heard before. The story is really interesting and just, I mean, what a cool one. I, I think, it, just listen. Luke Short grew up in England, and he was in the congregation of Flavel. If he was born in 1670, which is what time I think he was born, he would have been right at the end of the days when Flavel was having to hide in the 1688. The, the rules went away, so no longer was Flavel having to do that, but Flavel didn't live much longer than that. So he would have been right at the end of those days on persecution. The young man, uh, Luke, left England at the age of 15, so right around 1685, and went to America. He lived a wild and sinful life. He never showed any interest in God and never showed any interest in the sermons that he had heard once upon a time. Yet at the age of 100, yes, 100 years old, he was sitting in a field one day, and he was an old man. And to quote him, he looked quite accursed based on the life he had lived. So he had lived a hard life, and you could see it on his face. He had had a bad one, lots of drinking, all of that stuff. And as he sat in the field, he reflected on the life he had lived at the ripe old age of 100. And his thoughts went back to a sermon he'd heard 85 years before from John Flavel. He didn't even remember that he had heard this sermon, but he started thinking about it. Suddenly he remembered Flavel's passion, his energy, his earnestness. He said he felt stung by guilt like he had been knocked over all of a sudden, like a baseball bat had hit him to the stomach kind of a thing. And he didn't say baseball bat, but that's the idea. And he was suddenly just thinking about how guilty he was before God. And it was like he was in an argument with God, but God was using Flavel's sermon to argue back saying, you are sinful and you need to know me. As he remembered it and remembered more and more of the sermon, the sermon that he had long since forgotten was suddenly flooding into him word by word until he came under the strong conviction that he needed Jesus Christ. God used the sermon buried deep in the memory of this guy from a man who probably had died at that point 80 years ago. Yet he used it to bring Luke short to Christ when God spoke basically through that memory of that sermon. This man lived another 16 years. He died at the very, very old age of 116 years old. And everyone who knew him said he was completely sincere as a Christian the rest of his days, that the, the one they knew before, the Luke they had known for those past 85 years was nothing like the Luke they had those last 16. And he became, he was, I mean, he was saved based on a memory of a sermon that he had heard from a man who'd probably been dead for 80 years. That's incredible. That's, it really tells you, you don't know. I mean, I, I preach, I teach, I don't know. Maybe 80 years from now, those sermons and those messages will get to the people that I'm talking to if they won't hear it now. We didn't even mention Flavel's writings or his books or some of those things. His life is just an incredible testimony of Jesus Christ and the work it can do on the life of a believer. And he is, the sermon we're going to listen to is the way of salvation. And you can definitely tell in Flavel's life and in his death 80 years later from people who remember his sermons, uh, he knew the way to salvation. Adam was created just and good, for he was created holy, righteous, and immortal, with dominion given to him over all the creatures which God had created. But he did not long remain in this state, 
but through the tricks of the devil and his own rebellion, fallen from this excellent glory. And now he has brought upon us the misery of physical and eternal death. This is the original sin of which David speaks in the 51st Psalm, saying, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In the same manner, Paul says to the Romans that by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For as soon as Adam was fallen, he immediately came under a certain curse, as we read in Genesis, where God says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you will eat of it all the days of your life. In the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return unto the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. We certainly know that all things which receive life must die at last. This David clearly testifies, saying, What man is he who lives and does not see death? For Solomon says, The living know that they will die. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And to the Hebrews, that it is appointed for men once to die, but after this comes the judgment. For as the scripture says, We must all die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. For our days are like the days of a hired hand, and swifter than a runner. And we pass away like a stream, yes, like a leaf which the wind drives away, and a withered stalk, and a garment eaten by moths. For the dust must return to the earth, as it was, and the Spirit of God who gave it. As Job says, we are ashes, and must return to ashes. Likewise, James says, that man's life is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Yes, our time passes away as a cloud and is consumed like a mist and vanishes as a shadow. And Peter also says, quoting from Isaiah, that all flesh is like grass and all the glory of men as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away. Again, one says, this is the old covenant. You must die, the one today and the other tomorrow, like green leaves upon a tree. Some fall off and others grow again. And so it goes with mankind. Some die and some are born. As Solomon says, to everything there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die. And this is in the hands of the Lord. As Job says, man has his appointed time. The number of his months are with him. He has appointed our bounds that we cannot pass. Which Paul also says that God has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. And David says that our days are as a hand breadth by the Lord and our age is as nothing before him. How vain are all men who live without caring about tomorrow. For our days are lighter than a sewing needle and swifter than a runner. Moreover, We are here only as pilgrims and strangers for a short time. For the days of our years are sixty, and then maybe ten. And if by reason of strength they get to be eighty years, yet is there labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. And when we live long, we live a hundred years. As drops of water are to the sea, so are our years to eternity. 
And Peter says that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Even so are our years to eternity, for then we must all die according to the Holy Scripture. Who would not earnestly wish for death when we behold in what state and ruin we are plunged into by Adam, namely in all unrighteousness, misery, and trouble? For we are wicked and inclined to wickedness from our very infancy. For as Paul says, we are by nature the children of wrath and desire against every good work, having nothing of ourselves but sin. And David also says, There is none that does good. They have all gone aside, and they are altogether filthy. For the good that we would do, we do not by reason of sin that dwells in us. Of this inherent sin, David witnesses that we are conceived and born in sin and proceed in the same. For the inclination of men's hearts is to be evil from their youth. Since we so lie under the wrath of God and in the shadow of death, yes, in hell and damnation, therefore Christ, the light of the world, appeared to us and the Son of Righteousness rose. He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification and has also saved us when we were dead in sin and has forgiven us our sins. And he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and he took it out of the way and nailed it on the cross. There he has triumphed over all our enemies, as death, Satan, hell, and the curse of the law. Just as God has spoken by the prophet Hosea, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Give thanks to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For he has also, according to the promise of God, bruised the head of the devil in whose power we were once kept captives due to sin. God, to that end, that he might deliver us, has given us his dearest pledge, namely his only beloved Son, in whom the Father is well pleased. He has given him for an atoning sacrifice and a ransom. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Also in this was demonstrated the love of God toward us, because God sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is life eternal, says Christ, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ that you have sent. He is the true Messiah, who came into the world in the fullness of time, true God to crush the power of the devil, and true man to be our mediator before God, that he might deliver those who were captive under the law. He is that lamb without blemish, that was wounded and offered for our transgressions, to be an atoning sacrifice for all our sins, as Isaiah clearly testifies. And he who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. For he has given to us all his benefits, all his righteousness, merits, and holiness. Therefore, we must embrace him in faith and be thankful to him with love and obedience. And who would not love him who first loved us? In that when we were yet his enemies, he delivered and reconciled us. Then how much more being reconciled will we be saved by his life? For how can one have greater love than to lay down his life for his friends? which Christ, as a good shepherd, has done 
who has been obedient to his father even to death, even the death of the cross, and was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Also, he is the true Samaritan who has poured oil and wine in our wounds. That is to say, he has poured out his precious blood for our sins and bought us with such a precious price. For we are not, says Peter, redeemed with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. For we are not redeemed by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He has also delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Since we certainly know this, that we only obtain eternal salvation without our merits, for we have none, wherefore we are unprofitable servants. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, we must therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, so that we may obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. And since we always stand in need of help, we must always go to him. For he says by the prophet David, Call upon me on the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. And although a mother might forsake her child, yet I will never forsake you, as Christ himself says in the gospel, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you will find rest for your souls. To whom else should we go? He has the words of eternal life, and life is made in him. He is that heavenly manna which eternally satisfies our souls, that heavenly bread of which he who eats through faith will never hunger, and whoever drinks of his blood will never thirst. Again, Christ says by the Apostle John, Let him that is thirsty come and take the water of life freely. He who believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of this belly will flow rivers of living water, which are the operations of the Holy Spirit. Whoever drinks of that living water will never thirst, for the water that I will give him will be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. As God has said by the prophet Isaiah, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Therefore, let us go to this fountain for our refreshment, and not to be broken cisterns which contain no water. For of his fullness have we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He is the true mediator who stands between God and us to be our advocate against all our accusers. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. For this cause he is also a mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they who are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. 
Therefore, he is able also to save them completely, who come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. And the Apostle John agrees, saying, If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For all peoples and nations of the whole world who sincerely repent and turn themselves to God. For the Lamb was slain from the beginning of the world for believers, as Christ himself says, that Abraham saw his day and was glad. So we see that God is no respecter of persons. For God is not only the God of the Jews, but of the Gentiles also. For he is a God who justifies the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. For he has justified us by faith without the deeds of the law, after the manner David also spoke about. That salvation has only come to the man that God imputes righteousness to without works. Where he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For he is our true peace, so we have nothing to fear. For Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, yes, rather, who is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? We have the daily actual and other sins remaining in us, but we must not despair. For the prophet Isaiah says, Though your sins are red as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And this is done through Jesus Christ, who has washed away our sins by his blood, of which baptism is a sign. And the Lord's Supper is taken for us, that we are redeemed by the sacrifice of Christ once offered on the cross, that he might deliver us from the wrath to come and all iniquity so he may purify for himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. We who know for certain that we are reconciled to God by Jesus Christ should, according to the word of God, have an earnest desire to be delivered from this physical body. For we must come to that glorious inheritance of all the children of God, which is prepared for us in heaven. This is what Paul desired when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And again he says, We know that if our own earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we would have a building of God, eternal in the heavens. For in this body we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our house which is from heaven. We are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Therefore, we are willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. 
Again, Paul says, we know that the whole creation groans with us, but not only the creation, but we ourselves groan within ourselves. Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. And since we are pilgrims and strangers who would not desire to be at home in his native country. For here we walk in absence and in faith, but not in sight. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Who would not long after this sight, since we see that the holy men of God have craved after it. As we read in the 42nd Psalm, As the deer pants after the water brooks, so pants my soul after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When will I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? This unutterable, glorious sight of God is so great, as the prophet says, that eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Again, David says that a day in the courts of the Lord is better than a thousand. Yes, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell long in the tents of wickedness. How wonderful are your tabernacles, O Lord Almighty! Blessed are they that dwell in your house. They will be still praising you. They will be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of your house, and you will make them drink of the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we will see light. This is the delightful mansion of which Christ spoke of to John. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and bring you to myself, so that where I am there may you be also, namely in the new Jerusalem, which has no need of the sun, neither of the moon, for the glory of God enlightens it, and the Lamb is the light of all. There God will wipe all tears away from our eyes, and death will be no more. Death is the last enemy that God will trample under his feet. There God has prepared a glorious wedding where we will sit at the table of the Lord together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Blessed are they who are called to this wedding or supper. We cannot come to this supper by any other means than through death. Therefore, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As soon as the faithful depart from here, they enter into eternal rest. As Christ says, Where I am, there also my servants will be. Again, he who hears my word and believes in him that sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation, but has passed from death to life, which is also plainly to be seen in the dying criminal when he prayed and said, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Upon which Christ answered him, Today you will be with me in paradise. And Paul justly said, I desire to depart 
and to be with Christ. Solomon likewise says that dust must return to earth as it was and the Spirit of God who gave it, which also evidently appears in the example of Enoch and Elijah, who were both taken up into heaven where our citizenship and conversation is, from where we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body, that it may be like his glorious body. We cannot arrive to this state of glory unless through such tribulation, of which one elegantly speaks. My son, says he, if you come to serve the Lord, prepare your soul for trials. In them you will also rejoice, you who have for a short time mourned with many trials. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, he will make you perfect. He will establish, strengthen, and settle you. Again, Paul says, if we suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified together. For the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory which will be revealed to us. For our affliction is temporary and light, but works an eternal and exceeding weight of glory. And David said, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Therefore rejoice that when his glory will be revealed, you may be glad also with overwhelming joy. Christ has also suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us also go out for him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For herein has Christ left us an example that we should follow his steps. Again, Peter says, as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he who suffers in the flesh ceases to sin. Moreover, the Apostle James also says, My beloved brethren, count it all joy when you fall in various trials. And Paul likewise says, We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope makes you not ashamed, for which reason we must not despise the discipline of the Lord when we are rebuked by him. For who the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Be patient and establish your hearts, for the coming up of the Lord draws near. Take also the prophets for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. We count them happy which endure, for we have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, who has left us an example of perseverance. For we see that Christ for the suffering of death has been crowned with unfading honor. And so Christ also says, He who endures to the end will be saved. And the Apostle Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me, and not only to me, but all those who love his appearance. For James says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
To obtain this crown of righteousness, we must fight against all our enemies when they attack us on all sides, particularly against the tricks of the devil, against which you put on the whole armor of God. If you do, you will be able to withstand the devil and all his might. Peter, speaking of his fight, says that the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist and be steadfast in the faith, and he will flee from you. This victory and resistance we have of God through Christ, who tramples the devil under our feet, in whose power and bonds we were bound. He is the prince of this world that Christ has cast out. And we have likewise through him obtained the victory, and are also through faith made partakers of him. He is the old serpent who seeks to devour us as he did devour our first parents. He still bites us in the heel, and so he is called a murderer from the beginning. We must be diligent and on guard against his tricks, just as Peter says. Be sober and watchful in prayer. For as Christ says, we do not know the day or hour when the Lord will come, but you know that if the good man of the house had known in what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. Be ready also, for the Son of Man will come at an hour when we don't watch, but begin to beat our fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards. Then the Lord will come and cut us to pieces, and our portion will be with the hypocrites. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worm never dies, and the fire goes forever. For we certainly know that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, when we will say, Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction will come upon us, as labor comes upon a woman with child. So take care and watch yourself. For as a trap, or as lightning which comes suddenly, the judgment comes on us all. Watch and always pray that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. But this worthiness to stand before the Son of Man consists in a pure, undefiled, and immovable faith which works through love. This faith which we receive and embrace Christ with all His merits and benefits, this faith we must show by a pure life, as James says. And of this purity, Christ speaks by Matthew, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The principal purity lies in the heart. For as Christ says, Out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. All these things defile the man. Let the fruits of the Spirit follow, which are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, chastity, righteousness, and truth. Unless we are born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Yes, as Christ says, unless you repent and become as children, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. For nothing can enter into the kingdom that defiles or works abomination or makes a lie 
as Paul likewise clearly testifies. Since then, the law of God requires this perfection of us, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not keep the whole law. As James also says, Whoever offends in one point, he is guilty of all. Again, whoever does the law will live and die by it. But we do not keep the smallest commandment perfectly. As the wise man says, Therefore, we are by the law condemned in God's righteous judgment. But for this, we have a sure remedy and cure, namely Christ, who has redeemed us from the curse of the law and has satisfied the righteousness of God for us, making reconciliation. He has broken down the wall which was between us, namely the law, contained in ordinances, and forgiven us our sins, and torn the handwriting of them, and nailed it to the cross. For this great love Christ has shown, we must also love Him and be thankful to Him. We must be filled with good works and truly believe in Him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek Him. For the just will live by his faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the law. And although we suffer a little with Christ, we must not despair. For we see that Christ Himself, when He was broken for our sins, did not strike down in return. He suffered patiently. And if the ungodly live in great prosperity, as David and the prophets say they will, we must not be surprised or stumble. Instead, we comfort ourselves, being assured that their end is everlasting damnation. He lets them go as sheep to the slaughter. It is surprising that the faithful meet with still more crosses in comparison to the glorious joy which is prepared for them, and on the contrary, that the ungodly still have more prosperity than they have in comparison to the dreadful damnation which awaits them. And in this we have great comfort, that all believers will rise at the last day, of which Paul says, If the dead do not rise, then Christ has not risen. Our preaching is vain. We are then false witnesses of God. The type of our resurrection, we may read, is in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel. We will rise with flesh and bones. And Job also says, I know that my Redeemer lives and will raise me up out of the earth and that I will be covered with my skin and in my own flesh I will see God. Likewise, the prophet Isaiah says that the earth and the sea will give up the dead which have slept in them. But you must not be ignorant concerning those who are asleep, so that you do not sorrow even as others who have no hope. For we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not go before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. Then we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, where everyone will receive according to what he has done, whether it is good or bad. Then Christ will separate the sheep from the goats, and the sheep will be set on his right hand, who will hear the delightful voice, Come, 
you who are blessed, inherit the kingdom of my Father prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There we will stand with greater confidence against those who have distressed us. Then we will shine as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. There we will come to the hope of an innumerable company of angels. There we will reign from eternity to eternity. Amen. Blessed are those whose names are written in the book of life. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Nick Garland, husband, father, music pastor, in that order. He loves writing his own church music for the congregation to sing or to simply edify individuals. He has two albums you can find anywhere, one titled All Generations and another titled Crooked Hill Chasms. Yeah, Nick has read for us before, so definitely if you enjoyed listening to the sermon by him, go check out some of the other sermons he has done with us before as well. Also, if you enjoyed this episode of Revived Thoughts, we highly recommend you check out our other studio podcasts. Go check out Martyrs and Missionaries. They are putting together uh, My Wife Runs That Podcast. She has a new episode coming out very, very soon. For those of you who have been waiting, uh, it will be out soon on CT Stud. So very exciting one coming out there. And make sure you're listening to Revived Devos, daily devotionals every single day, two to three minutes of helpful Uh, just advice or devotional material from the past that you can learn from great teachers. So go check those out. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.